the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Friday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice, he's given up his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to hear from Robin Chambers. She's the Director of Advocacy for Children at Focus on the Family. They're hosting an event this Saturday, Sea Life 2020. You can find out more at their website. We'll talk about it when she joins us at the top of the second hour of today's program with all the important details. We're also going to share a classic interview with Mary Graybar. One of the most important interviews, I would say, of the uh, of the year, debunking Howard Zinn, exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America. That's coming up in the latter part of the second hour of today's program as well. We'll also take a look at the lighter side of the news. That's coming up this hour, and we'll work our way through some of the top stories of the day. Well, the Oregon Health Authority announced 382 new suspected or confirmed cases and two new deaths linked to COVID-19 today. Actually, yesterday, the highest daily case count since mid-August. The growth in cases continues to alarming uh, those who are following these numbers that began on Tuesday when Oregon saw a marked increase in case counts, positivity rates and hospitalizations. The agency acknowledged the uptick, saying the count was a reminder of the importance of staying six feet apart from each other, wearing a face covering when six feet of physical distance cannot be maintained and limiting the size of gatherings. Portland police are going to work to keep the Proud Boys planning an end domestic terrorism rally in De- uh, Delta Park on Saturday, separate from counter protesters holding a simultaneous demonstration in Peninsula Park. Uh, the deputy chief, Chris Davis, said our primary goal is to keep these groups out of contact with each other completely. That's really the safest way to get through this. Well, police have canceled officers days off. They plan to have a large uniformed officer presence while also working to regulate traffic. Police have the lawful authority to control ta- traffic to maintain public safety. Yet uh, Davis, again, who is the deputy chief um, of police, acknowledged that blocking off large traffic arteries would require more resources. Well, the city of Portland's Parks and Recreation Bureau denied a permit to the Proud Boys to hold their gathering at North Portland, the park, finding that its large crowd estimate violated the governor's emergency restrictions, barring groups of more than 50 people from gathering to avoid the spread of the coronavirus amid the pandemic. Apparently, sometimes they care about it, sometimes they don't. Uh, The international chair of the Proud Boys said that that, uh, his group didn't expect to receive the permit, but is continuing with its plans to demonstrate at Delta Park. Counter-protesters plan a rally more than three miles away at Peninsula Park at the same time. We can only hope and pray they remain separate from one another. Police are still making last-minute arrangements in an effort to bolster law enforcement. So far, Oregon State Police, Multnomah County Sheriff's Office, Milwaukee, and Lake Oswego Police Departments have agreed to provide some type of assistance, and the Police Bureau is looking for more help. And that's coming up this weekend.
Well, the Pac-12 will be back in the football business in November. The conference announced yesterday Pac-12 teams are going to play a seven-game conference-only season. It's going to include a championship game on the 18th of December at the home stadium of the divisional champion with the best record. No fans will be permitted through the course of the season. The plan was hammered out in a meeting of Pac-12 presidents and chancellors on Thursday. It caps a pretty tumultuous uh, last six weeks as the conference twisted and turned while trying to respond to the coronavirus pandemic. Well, the final schedule hasn't been finalized, but teams will play the other teams in their division and one crossover game. The seventh game will be played on December 18th or 19th as part of a championship weekend. But college football is back. Well, thousands of people are expected to convene in Washington on Saturday for Franklin Graham's inaugural prayer march. Tens of thousands have expressed interest in the prayer march, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association says. Uh, Franklin Graham announced on Twitter that he's spearheading the prayer march on the 8th of August, calling it a necessary event for a nation in trouble. Um, Interest in the prayer march ranges as far as Puerto Rico. Christians plan to organize their own prayer march marches locally if they can't attend Saturday's event in D.C. There's going to be no microphones, no audio amplification during the march on Saturday, according to the prayer march's official website. Um, Billy Graham's Evangelistic Association intends for this to inspire silent prayer among attendees. The prayer march will consist of seven stops around the National Mall, with each having its own prayer focus, according to the march's website. The stops were announced last month on the march website with the uh, seventh stop designated for prayer at the U.S. Capitol for the Supreme Court. Not knowing what was um, going to happen in the next few weeks, uh, this certainly is a, a prophetic move to pray at the Supreme Court. The primary source of the anti-Trump Steele dossier was the subject of an FBI counterintelligence investigation from 2009 to 2011 for suspected contact with Russian intelligence officers. And Bill Barr says the primary source of this anti-Trump dossier faced FBI probe for a possible Russian ties. Well, the attorney general penned a letter to the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman on Thursday responding to requests as part of the panel's review into the origins of the Russia probe. In connection with your committee's investigation of these matters and ongoing hearings, you have been asking us to accelerate this process and to provide any additional information relating to the reliability of the work of Christopher Steele and the so-called Steele dossier as long as its release would not compromise U.S. Attorney John Durham's ongoing criminal investigation. He wrote a footnote in the Inspector General's report contains information which up till uh, till now has been classified and redacted, bearing on the reliability of the Steele dossier. The FBI has declassified the relevant portion of the footnote, number 334, which states that the primary subsource was the subject of an FBI counterintelligence investigation from 2009 to 2011 that assessed his or her contacts with suspected Russian intelligence officers. Barr added that at his request, the FBI has prepared a declassified summary of certain information from the counterintelligence investigation into the source, which he has shared with the committee. Well, in other uh, developments, Lindsey Graham says that the latest bombshell tied to the Russian investigation makes him angry. And Sean Hannity says the Steele dossier subsource revelation is irrefutable evidence of massive FISA court fraud. Meanwhile, the Justice Department has ordered the Pennsylvania County to uh, uh, change their ballot practices After some troubling findings, the Justice Department sent a letter to Luzerne County in Pennsylvania on Thursday, ordering it to change its practice after multiple military ballots supporting President Trump 
were found discarded. The issue surfaced earlier in the day when Justice um, announced it was uh, had recovered a small number of discarded ballots. While the department wouldn't say where it had found the ballots, it did say there were nine recovered, seven of which were cast for President Trump, while the other two were sealed by Luzerne. Uh, county before the FBI recovered them. When his letter to county officials, U.S. Attorney uh, David Freed indicated additional ballot materials were also found in a dumpster. Freed said the investigation yielded troubling findings, including that the county allegedly improperly opened ballots. Even though your staff has made some attempts to reconstitute certain of the improperly opened ballots, there is no guarantee that any of these uh, votes will be counted in the general election. In addition, our investigation has revealed that all or nearly all envelopes received in the elections office were opened as a matter of course. It was explained to investigators the envelopes used for official overseas military absentee and mail-in ballots requests are so similar that the staff believe that adhering to the protocol of preserving envelopes unopened would cause them to miss such ballot requests. Our interviews further revealed that this issue was a problem in the primary election, therefore a known issue, and that the problem has not been corrected. We went on to say, while the assigned investigators are continuing their work, including reviewing additional discarded materials, it is imperative that the issue identified be corrected. Pennsylvania election officials have sounded the alarm over the naked ballot ruling, warning it could jeopardize up to 100,000 votes in that state. In other news, more than half a million votes have already been cast in the 2020 election, and there's not going to be a presidential debate until Tuesday. A Philadelphia election official is urging the GOP state legislature to outlaw secrecy envelopes for mail-in ballots. And the Pennsylvania Supreme Court has extended the state mail ballot deadline to three days after the election. Well, the new polls show support for protests like those engulfing Louisiana, uh, or rather Louisville, Kentucky, following a grand jury decision in the Breonna Taylor case has fallen from a peak reached soon after the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Uh, according to police, the survey by the Associated Press, Nork Center for Public Affairs Research, finds 44 percent of Americans disapprove of protests in response to police violence against black Americans, while 39 percent approve. In June, 54 percent approved of the protests. The survey was conducted before Wednesday's announcement that a former Louisville police officer would be charged in the Taylor case, though not directly for her death. Floyd's death had also sparked a renewed focus on the shooting that killed Taylor during a drug raid on the night of March 13th. The poll also found that 35 percent of white Americans approve of the protests now, while 50 percent disapprove. Just three months ago, 53 percent of white Americans approved of the protest, while 34 percent disapproved. Among Latinos, 31 percent approve, 44 percent do not. 63 percent of uh, black Americans support the protest, down from 81 percent with more now saying they neither approve or disapprove. In other developments, the Louisville protesters were arrested during a church, or rather near a church, that offered safe refuge, and the Louisville police officer who was shot in the line of duty showed up for roll call the very next day. Charles Barkley, in reacting to the Breonna Taylor case, dismissed the defund police as, as he put it, crap. A Louisville Democrat who backed Brianna's law and criticized the state attorney general has been arrested in the unrest as well. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break. We'll be back. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. In the next couple of segments, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. I hope you'll stick around for that. Also, we'll talk with uh, Robin Chambers in the five o'clock hour, the director of advocacy for children on the Focus on the Family event this Saturday, Sea Life 2020. More details when she joins us at the top of the hour. We'll also hear from Mary Graybar, author of Debunking Howard Zinn, exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America. Well, a new Fox News poll says there's a tight race in Ohio. Biden tops Trump in Nevada and Pennsylvania as well. And Trump is touting the return of Pac-12's college football season, saying, you're welcome. The Justice Department has asked a judge to allow the U.S. to bar WeChat from U.S. app stores. And a court has ruled the innocent Madoff investors must pay back their profits. Wow. Trump plans to give Medicare beneficiaries checks to pay for their medicines as well. Well, as I mentioned earlier, the Steele dossier posed a possible national security threat. Catherine Herridge on CBS pointed out that the primary subsource for the Steele dossier was deemed a possible national security threat, plus the subject of 2009 FBI counter-intel probe. According to new records, those facts were known to Crossfire Hurricane team in December of 2016, yet they did not respond. Ari Fleischer points out to investigate if Trump colluded with Russia, the FBI relied on information paid for by the Clinton campaign based on a source suspected by the FBI of being a Russian agent. The FBI then hid from the FISA court who paid for the info and the fact that the source might be a foreign agent. A powerful thread from Kimberly Strassel includes this. Here's the real kicker per these documents out from Lindsey Graham. The FBI knew about this prior CI investigation into the source in December of 2016. It knew it was relying on information from a suspected Russian spy. From another story, nowhere in the 57 pages is it shown that the Crossfire Hurricane investigators who questioned uh, Dechenko ever ask him about his actions in 2008, which led him to be classified by the FBI as a threat to national security. Bottom line, the FBI investigators running Crossfire Hurricane were happy to have the assistance of a suspected Russian intelligence asset to assist the FBI in their efforts to drive Donald Trump from office. Josh Hawley points out that this is the biggest scandal and the gravest abuse of the law in FBI history, using Russian spies to interfere in a presidential election. Talk about collusion. Well, that was it. Julio Rosas says that Reuters is wrong. The riots were not mostly peaceful. Rosas, the town hall journalist who regularly reports from the middle of these riots, details the Louisville riots step by step with video evidence. You can find that at townhall.com. And the Daily Caller points out that more than 300 people in 29 states in Washington, D.C. have been charged for crimes ranging from damaging federal property to attempted murder under the guise of peaceful demonstrations, the Justice Department said in a Thursday statement. Andy No last night with video evidence says First Unitarian Church of Louisville is welcoming black protesters and rioters as the curfew comes into effect. Some are making sure whites stay out. They threaten to beat up those who don't comply. And Dr. Albert Moeller, a resident of Louisville, details the case and the aftermath in his regular briefing. Biden's statement on the subject indicates he has no idea what's really going on. Meanwhile, Politico has deemed Judge uh, Barrett's religion troubling in an effort to justify their attacks on her faith. So the writer insists they have every right to attack her faith because it's troubling. A breakdown of the errors in the piece can be found in the New York Post. Meanwhile, Mitch McConnell on Democrats attacking the yet-to-be-named candidate 
Former Vice President Biden has already cut to the front of the line. Just yesterday, he offered the following assessment prior to learning who he was assessing. Quote, women's rights as it relates to everything from medical health care to uh, going to be gone or rather is going to be gone. This is former Vice President Biden yesterday. Good luck deciphering what he's trying to say. It sounds like more of the same stuff. Perhaps the nation will soon watch this man in his late 70s condescend to explain women's health care to one of the brilliant women whom President Trump indicates he is considering. Because there's nobody who can uh, preach to a conservative woman, woman better than a liberal man. Well, three have been arrested in a Texas uh, for mail ballot fraud. Uh, in an announcement with potential significance for the November election, when voting by mail is expected to increase significantly because of the threat of COVID-19, Paxton said Gregg County Commissioner Shannon Brown, Marlena Jackson, Charlie Burns, and Dwayne Ward orchestrated a vote harvesting scheme to help win Brown win the Democratic primary two years ago. And Strawn says good churches see growth during a lockdown from the piece that uh, he wrote Undeterred by the hysteria and difficulty ripping through our society, many quiet and unspectacular churches continue to do what they have always done. They preach and teach the Bible. Nothing fancy, nothing new. And while submitting to the government as much as possible, per Romans 13, they have not seceded ecclesiastical lordship, principally or practically, to Caesar. In different forms and circumstances, they are uh, doggedly feeding the flock during our national lockdown. Such ministry is having a real effect. Line upon line, preaching is yielding sheep upon sheep growth. Be encouraged. Well, the president's executive order will reduce prescription drug costs. Uh, Avic Roy points out that the uh, president is following through on another promise and older Americans will benefit. And a woman was tasered after refusing to wear a mask at a high school football game. She was an, uh, at an outdoor, well, actually a middle school game. Uh, Ed Morrissey points out there wasn't anyone outside her family bubble within six feet of her breath. In fact, it doesn't look like there was anyone uh, within 20 feet of her until the police officer approached her, putting himself in harm's way, in quotes. Besides that, this game was played outdoors where transmission risk is minimal anyway. Masks make sense indoors or where participant uh, density is significant. But in this case, the transmission risk for the woman is likely zero. A request to put the mask back on should have sufficed or even a ticket requiring a fine. But what transpires in a video that you can find online exponentially increases the risk of transmission. How did that serve the public good that the mask mandate is supposedly serving? It's a rhetorical and open question. As I mentioned earlier, Franklin Graham is organizing a prayer march in Washington, D.C. that will be replicated all across the country, marching 1.8 miles to pray for our country. You can find out more at the website Prayer March. The same day on evening, Focus on the Family is having an online event to support the pro-life cause. Well, President Trump was right. Explosive new FBI texts detail internal furor over handling of the crossfire hurricane investigation. And the FBI on Robert Mueller's team said Michael Flynn's prosecution had get Trump attitude collusion all over it. John Durham is reviewing the FBI's handling of the investigation into the Clinton Foundation. And Democrats are planning to introduce the Supreme Court term limits bill. President Trump signed an executive order on pre-existing conditions, and he and First Lady Melania Trump were booed as they prayed 
uh, rather paid their respects to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Vote him out was also clearly heard. Military ballots were found in the trash in Pennsylvania. All were Trump voters. And ballot mischief also cropped up in Wisconsin and in Texas. The governor in Texas announced a proposal for harsher penalties to those involved in riots. And a new wave of cases is building in the, all across the United States of COVID-19. Questions are being asked about whether the official COVID-19 death toll is accurate. Evidence suggests it's not, but either way, it's something of a distraction. Well, Iranian drones are tracking U.S. warships in the Persian Gulf, and a terror probe has opened into a recent Harris knife attack. The incident was near the former offices of the satirical newspaper Charlie Hebdo. As I mentioned, the Pac-12 has approved a seven-game football season starting November 6th and 7th, and the pandemic jobs recovery has lost some momentum. Well, on this day in history, 1789, the first United States Congress adopts 12 amendments to the Constitution and sends them to the states for ratification. Ten of the amendments would become the Bill of Rights. 1956, the year I was born, the first transatlantic telephone cable officially goes into service with a three-way ceremonial call between New York, Ottawa, and London. 1957, nine black students who were forced to withdraw from Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, because of unruly white uh, crowds, are escorted to uh, class by members of the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division. 1962, Sonny Liston knocks out Floyd Patterson in round one to win the world heavyweight title at Comiskey Park in Chicago. I mentioned that one for my dad. 1981, Sandra Day O'Connor is sworn in as the first female justice on the Supreme Court. And finally, on this day in history, 1992, NASA Mars Observer blasts off on $980 million mission to the Red Planet. The probe would disappear just before entering Martian orbit in August 1993. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, the lighter side of the news. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Thought we'd take a look at some of the lighter side of the news, and I've invited James Blend to join me to do just that. How you doing, Jimmy? I'm doing all right. It's Friday. How bad could it possibly, possibly be? <laughs> Although I look well, outside, know, it's it's kind of depressing out there today. As much as we've know, needed this rain, it, as soon as it showed up, it's like, oh, glad you're here. And the next day, I, I'm I'm done with you. Yeah, you want the little sunshine back. Well, I'm not going to complain in this odd year that we're having. Well, here's an odd story. An African giant pouched rat. And I'm going to pause because just picture that, an African giant pouched rat. When I say giant, um, it's the size of a small dog or a um, large cat. It's pretty big. It's been awarded a prestigious gold medal for his work detecting landmines. Now, how on earth you domesticate a uh, giant pouched rat, I don't know, but it's received a prestigious award. It's Magawa. Uh, He sniffed out 39 landmines and 28 unexploded munitions in his career. Now, the U.K. veterinary charity PDSA has presented him with its gold medal for life-saving devotion to duty in the location and clearance of deadly landmines in Cambodia. Now, how this rat has any clue what it's doing or the value of its work, it probably just wants, you know, a treat. Uh, I don't know, but it received a prestigious gold medal award. There are thought to be up to six million landmines in Southeast Asian uh, the country, uh, and the PS, uh, rather PDSA gold medal is inscribed with the words for animal gallantry or devotion to duty of the 30 animal recipients of the award. Magawa is the first rat. Uh, he is seven years old. Uh, the rodent was trained by the Belgium-registered charity Apapo, which is based in Tanzania. 
and has been raising um, the animals like him for um, known as hero rats to detect landmines and tuberculosis since the 1990s. The animals are certified after a year of training. So apparently you can train an African giant pouched rat to save lives. Um, I would probably lose mine just seeing it close up, but uh, kudos to the gold medal winning rat. You know, I'm, I'm looking at the African giant pouched rat here, and I, I honestly think it looks more like a koala crossed with a bunny than it does a <laughs> rat. Uh, but yeah. this is actually not the uh, – in, in looking for the photo, I've discovered this is not the first thing that the uh, African giant pouched rat has been trained to do that is uh, of benefit. Um, that um, Tariq is a, uh, is a uh, pouched rabbit in Mozambique who has been um, – yeah, um, rat. Uh, has, he has been trained to um, – Identify correctly samplers samples that are positive for tuberculosis. Yeah, yeah. It's so a, these are, this is apparently a uh, a fairly useful species apart from their bizarre appearance, <laughs> which some people might say is cute. It kind of does border on cute until you uh, apply the word rat, rat, and then something just yeah something falls away and it's it's just a rodent. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where if I was if I was a giant pouched rat, I would be. Uh, uh, lobbying someone to change my name yeah maybe so yeah well they say too much of a good thing can be harmful as was the case for one massachusetts man whose love of black licorice i have to admit i love no i really really like black licorice i love my husband i really really like black licorice ultimately cost him his life in a case report recently detailed in the New England Journal of Medicine, doctors revealed that a 54-year-old Massachusetts construction worker essentially overdosed on black licorice. The candy contains a particular acid, which caused the man's potassium levels to plummet. Dangerously low levels of potassium can lead to abnormal heart rhythms, high blood pressure, and in some cases, congestive heart failure. Even a small amount of licorice you eat can increase your blood pressure a little bit, says one doctor, a cardiologist at the Massachusetts General Hospital and one of the authors of the case report on the subject. The man who was not identified in the case report collapsed while eating lunch at a fast food restaurant, which may also have contributed to his untimely death. The incident occurred a few weeks after he had switched from red licorice, which in my book is not licorice at all, to black licorice, which reigns supreme. He reportedly ate a bag or more of that candy per day. So bad idea, too much of a good thing is too much of a good thing. Oh, yeah, that's just, I mean, I'm not, I'm more of a red licorice guy, but yeah, even again, I it have needs my to be limits. called something else. But yes, yeah, it's um, too yeah, much. I'm, is too I'm much. perfectly happy calling them red vines or, you yeah, know, or that's Twizzlers, better. you know, whatever the brand name is at the time. Because you really but, don't want to trigger me on the subject. It's, it could go uh, really wrong. Well, and for me, I don't, I don't like the other kind. So I, I don't want to associate mentally either. So it's, it's, it's a mutual thing. <laughs> well, firefighters in the town of Wurl in western Germany tackled an unusual emergency late on Monday when a tank at a local firm making liquid chocolate overflowed and poured out onto the street. About a ton of chocolate ran out onto the yard and from there onto the street, they say. That's the Wurl Fire Department. You know, the fire department, they get called for everything. Well, the fire department closed off the street and shoveled the chocolate about 108 square feet to one side before a specialist cleaning company was able to come and clean the road. Despite this heartbreaking incident, it is uh, unlikely that the chocolate-free Christmas is imminent 
in world. They're going to be able to produce what they need. I, I will have to say I could see myself uh, on all fours, uh, you know, if it's thick enough, taking advantage of chocolate that happened to be spilled out onto Sweet Street. Okay. You know, if you did it quickly, the five-second rule might apply. I'm just saying. You know, in the, in this in this day and age of the fact that we don't see anybody anywhere, I I kind of look at the five-second rule as somewhat suspended at the moment uh, because, you know, it's just like, eh, who's, who's going to see me? Five minutes works. <laughs> in other words, that five seconds is really for other people who might be looking on in disgust. It's it has all- nothing to do with what you're willing to do. Yeah, I, I, I can, I can get down, get down with that. I mean, because the reality of it, it's been tested time <laughs> and time again. The second it hits the uh, second it hits the ground, it's covered in germs. So you're just in denial with the five second rule to begin with. <laughs> it's really about keeping up appearances. Well, there you go, keeping so up now, appearances. Now that now that you don't have to do that as much. Yeah, you know, the dog comes along, licks it. No big deal. You know, just leave it on the okay. ground. I do, no, I, I don't have that's a dog, I so that's <laughs> I don't have a dog, so that's not an issue. But uh, you know, I jokingly <laughs> refer to it as the five minute rule now. Well, the traditional 60th anniversary gift is a diamond, but what if it's a sandwich anniversary? Well, let me explain. An Illinois man recently celebrated the 60th anniversary of the day he grabbed then Vice President Richard Nixon's unfinished sandwich on September 22nd, 1960, when the politician was visiting his hometown of Sullivan to give a speech. He has kept that sandwich ever since. The Buffalo barbecue sandwich has gotten Steve Jen invited on several TV shows, including The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. That was a while ago. He even co-wrote a book about the sandwich that was published this year. I'm not sure who's reading it, and why it was published. You could probably sell this to some museum, a very pathetic museum, he jokes, about the paper plate on which the sandwich has been served. Well, Jen, the owner, uh, who was 14 at the time, told the Herald Review that his school let out early on the day of Nixon's visit and his Boy Scout troop uh, was enlisted to help with the event. His post was right uh, behind the vice president at the park where he was serving the sandwich, or rather served the sandwich as lunch, before his speech, he took a couple of bites and then commented how tasty, how good it was, but he didn't finish it. When Nixon left, so did everybody else in the park. So Jen, he decided this is his chance. He stayed behind, and that's when he noticed the remains of the sandwich. I looked around and thought, if no one else was going to take it, I'm going to take it. Well, he's kept it ever since. He stuck it in the freezer, according to the report. It stayed there until he moved out and put the sandwich um in his own freezer in his home as an adult. The sandwich remained mostly out of the public eye until 1988 when a local newspaper story hit the wire service and went international. That led to his Tonight Show appearance where he uh, was also given a um, half-eaten snack from Carson and a paper plate from comedian Steve Martin. He later went on to receive souvenir sandwiches from a couple of other celebrities and appeared on the game show I got a secret, according to the Herald Review. Uh, Jen told the newspaper he has no plans to get rid of the leftovers anytime soon. As long as I am living, that sandwich will be stored in my freezer in a container that is labeled, Save, Don't Throw Away. I don't get it, but okay. Hey, we need to take a break. Uh, You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, taking a look at some of the lighter side of the news. We'll be back to continue in a moment. Definitely not going to eat during this break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we're going to talk with Robin Chambers, Director of Advocacy for Children. We'll talk about this Saturday's event from Focus on the Family, Sea Life 2020. We'll give you all the important details when she joins me at the top of the next hour. Well, McDonald's says it's time to celebrate in 2020 style. I'm not sure I would have added that to it because 2020 style is pretty depressing. But McDonald's is marking the 25th anniversary of its famous and infamous McFlurry dessert, a releasing limited edition loungewear this week. Um, They're celebrating their 25th year of the McFlurry with a birthday suit pajama. Well, the fast food chain announced the launch of the McFlurry 25th birthday suit on Wednesday, saying the sets are perfectly tailored for those not-so-normal times to give fans a feel-good celebration they need this year. According to the announcement, the birthday suits are yellow and are patterned with three McFlurry flavors, including Oreo, M&M's, and Chips Ahoy, a new limited-edition flavor. Now, the shirt has an uh, insulated pocket to keep your McFlurry dessert chilled and deep pockets uh, in the shorts to store your spoon, according to the description of the outfit. The unisex loungewear sets uh, will be available starting on Friday at $25 a set while supplies last. And a coupon for a free snack size McFlurry comes with each birthday suit. So are you ordering one? Uh, Yeah, no, I I don't think so. But, you know, I'll I'll get back (laughs) to you if that changes. The things they make is just uh, incredible to me. Well, artificial intelligence uh, robots are showing up in various places. When one served customers at a Seoul restaurant, a kind of a trolley-like robot delivered uh, food to customers at a restaurant there in order to minimize human contact and help ensure social distancing. Now, for those who have worked there, aspire to work there, this may be bad news. It's called Aglio Kim, a trolley-like robot. It uses artificial intelligence to deliver the food to customers at the restaurant in Seoul in order to minimize that contact. Shortly after customers order through a touchscreen on the table, the 1.25-meter-tall robot developed by South Korean telecoms company KT Corp brings the food and uses its visual slam or simultaneous localization and mapping capabilities to avoid obstacles and navigate, uh, rather navigate around customers. Now, the robot can deliver food to up to four tables at once, uh, the robot is equipped with food trays, which can uh, carry up to 30 kilograms, and an LCD screen and speaker that communicate in both Korean and English. Customers found the robot serving quite unique and interesting and also felt safe from the coronavirus, although people have to touch the tray to put it on there and all of that. But uh, from Monday, restaurants and cafes in the densely populated uh, Seoul metropolitan area are allowed to open after 9 p.m., after 9 p.m., but they have to leave two meters between tables and uh, record patrons' names and contact details for contact tracing. So that may be a wave of the future that, at least in Seoul, Korea, they may not return from if it uh, proves to be cost-effective and customer-effective. Now there's a smart crib that aims to help rockabye babies, so parents have to be even less involved with their own children. As every new parent knows, sleep can go out of the window after the arrival of a newborn. That was certainly the case for parents um, Radhika and, let's see, Bararath Patil, who uh, sought relief for their own disrupted sleep patterns, put their electronic engineering backgrounds together to create a smart crib. Now, their crib, powered by artificial intelligence, combines a baby monitor, a rocker, a bassinet, and a crib all in one. It's not the amount of work around the baby that uh, tires parents. It's the lack of sleep, says Baum, 
Cradlewise chief executive, that's what they call it. According to a recent study, new mothers lose a half hour of sleep per night on average, and it can take them up to six years to regain their pre-pregnancy sleep levels. It was for the first uh, child that the Patels uh, built the Cradlewise smart crib. They used a patented silent rocking mechanism combined with a set of cameras to monitor the baby and transmit live through a smartphone app. So we have a baby monitor that's looking at the baby, detecting the early signs of wake up, and it starts the rocker as well. Early detection is key, she says, adding that the sooner parents can detect the baby's waking up, the easier it is to get the child to fall back to sleep. Now, would you have considered something like that with your little sweet girl? No, that's a little too, uh, little too automatic for my taste. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you're really sleep deprived, I can see why that could or how that could be a real benefit. But yeah, I don't know. I, I just the the the, uh, the possibility of malfunction would probably, you know, while low, I'm sure, but it still would be enough to at least cause the sleep guy get to be restless and, you know, less useful than it needs to be anyway. Yeah, you'd probably be babysitting the technology rather than the kid making sure it's working so that the child is taken care of. So And you spend yeah, more you time on right. the tech than, than you do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Liam and Olivia are officially the top baby names of 2019 in the U.S., according to a list released by the Social Security Administration earlier this month. This is the third year in a row that Liam has topped the boys' list with uh, 20,502 babies given that name. However, Olivia is the new uh, number one spot for girls. For the past five years, the name Emma has been at the top of the uh, girls' list. There were 18,451 babies named Olivia in 2019, but only 17,102 babies named Emma. Well, usually the Social Security Administration releases the figures Mother's Day. However, the coronavirus pandemic, which can you can just about explain anything uh, in that context, delayed their announcement. Well, the Social Security Administration started compiling the annual baby names list in 97 with names dating back to or rather 1880. At the time of a child's birth, parents give the name to the agency when applying for a child's Social Security card, thus making the Social Security Administration America's official source for the most popular baby names. The agency said that each year the list reveals pop culture's influence on naming trends. Lord, help us. Okay, for boys, Liam uh, Liam is number one, Noah, number two, Oliver, three, William, four, Elijah, number five, James, followed by Benjamin, Lucas, Mason, and Ethan. For the girls, at the number one spot, Olivia, followed by Emma, Ava, Sophia, Isabella, Charlotte, Amelia, Mia, Harper, and Evelyn. Well, parenting websites like babynames.com and Baby Center released their 2019 lists in December of last year. But there are disagreements about the list's accuracy. Both of those sites found common ground with Liam at the top of the boys list this year. But that's where the disagreement began. While Baby Center picked Sophia as its top girl name, Baby Names crowned royalty-inspired Charlotte as its most popular name for girls. But according to the Social Security Administration, both were wrong. So there you have it. Now, there's no uh, possibility that your uh, your little girl's name is going to become a very common factor. She's got a very unique and beautiful name. Yes, uh, that was kudos on purpose. On picking that. Yeah, kudos on picking such a lovely name. Now, is that uh, is the origin British? Uh, it's, it's Yeah, it's certainly European, but it's also you know, got some Latin roots to it because it's uh, the Latin word for truth. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I'm, it's kind of, I'm still kind of a little uh, 
Yeah, I got to be honest, a little honored. Forty-five years later, my name is still up there, and uh, it's still on it's, there. It's rather timeless. I'm, I'm kind of like me. Sadly, Georgine has never made the list. I'll just leave well, it at that. My daughter's name's not going to make the list. My my wife's name's not going to make the list. So, you know, we're just unique. We'll put it that way. Yes, that's a good word for it. <laughs> An 84-year-old Texas man was presented with a high school diploma more than 65 years after he left high school prematurely to serve in the Korean War. He's now 84 years old. Texarkana Independent School District's Board of Trustees took time during a recent meeting to present Paul Mackey with his high school diploma. Mackey had been scheduled to graduate in 1954, but he left before finishing his senior year to join the U.S. Marines and to serve in the Korean War. Many American students gave up their educational dreams when they left high school to enlist and serve their country during that time of war, the school district spokeswoman said. Um, Veal Gooch said the Texas Education Code allows districts to issue diplomas to honorably dis- discharged veterans who served in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Mackey, who previously got his GED and graduated college, said getting his diploma completed his education. You kids out there who see this, be smart, he says. Be smart, go to school, and stay there. Oh, congratulations uh, to him. Well, the um, woman from New Jersey nearly lost her home because she owed six cents in back taxes. She suffers from Alzheimer's disease and couldn't grasp the situation. Her 89-year-old, uh, uh, this woman is 89-year-old. She's a New Jersey woman with Alzheimer's disease, nearly lost her home of 50 years because she owed a grand total of six cents in back taxes. Well, it's since been taken care of, but um, make sure you pay every penny because the IRS apparently is relentless. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break for uh, the top of the hour news and traffic. When we return, we'll talk with Robin Chambers. She's Director of Advocacy for Children at Focus on the Family. We're going to talk about their event this Saturday, Sea Life 2020, at 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. We'll give you all the important details in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back to The Georgine Rice Show. You've been hearing on our station more information about Sea Life 2020, and we've been waiting for the day to come. Well, that is coming up tomorrow. Sea Life 2020 is an online event. It's going to expose the lies and the pain of abortion and celebrate the miraculous wonder of life. You can watch it. You can share the digital premiere that includes uh, pro-life stories of hope, compelling Christian commentary, soul-stirring music, plus a 4D ultrasound of a baby offering a window into the reality of life in the womb. It is an incredible opportunity that's coming Coming up this Saturday at 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time. Here to talk with us more about that is Robin Chambers. She's the Director of Advocacy for Children with Focus on the Family. Welcome, and we're so excited about Sea Life 2020. Uh, thanks so much for having me on, and we're very excited as well. This is something very new for us. Well, you know, this is so timely because we are about to see the debate over a Supreme Court justice that could very well change the uh, the balance on the Supreme Court around the issue of life. So a lot of people are thinking about this, but given the education system and where most people get their information, there might be some confusion about what abortion is, uh, what life in the womb is all about. Tell us about Sea Life 2020 and how that's going to help us better understand these issues and to support and stand for life. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, a lot of people don't know what 
um, you know, what abortion is. And I just recently read an article from University of Notre Dame and their scientific uh, and religion uh, department uh, did a poll and a broad study on do most Americans even know what abortion is? And so that's our opportunity for Sea Life 2020 to really educate people. And isn't that where empowerment comes from? It's from that education. So we have some folks who are talking about that. Abby Johnson is one of our speakers. And as you know, she was mm-hmm. a director of a Planned Parenthood, and she's very open and honest about what happens. Um, parts of that are pretty gritty, um, but she wants people to understand um, where Planned Parenthood is coming from, what their goals are. And then we come, we get to come in with her redemptive story of how she found Christ and what she's doing now to stand for life. And she's one of many that will tell those abortion stories. And what you're going to hear is um, a lot of redemption and grace and mercy and hope and healing um, in the midst of some really hard stories. You know, I so appreciate Focus on the Family taking this subject on because abortion is such a distasteful subject. Many of us have been shielded from the realities of what it is. We've also been prevented from hearing those positive stories that you've just made reference to of women who have found grace and hope, who have either survived an abortion or prevented one from happening, to put all of that in one place and to encourage people to think about what I can do to stand for the sanctity of human life and support women who find themselves with untimely pregnancy. This is just a tremendous gift uh, to our communities. Oh, I agree. And we have, um, we also have a gentleman who I won't give it away um, because I'm sure your listeners will know who it is as soon as they see his name and hear his voice. Um, He shares his own abortion story. And so we're bringing in a man's perspective as well. Um, And he talks about the pain from that past abortion Mm. decision, but he also talks about the redemption. And I love what he says. He says, it's never a mistake when you choose life. Those are just hope-filled words for men and women who um, maybe haven't found the path to healing just yet. And so we're hoping that that's what they'll hear on Saturday night. And as you said, it's it's coming up. It's right around the corner. It's tomorrow evening at 5 p.m. your time. And amazing speakers, amazing music that will really be a time of worship as well as a time of celebrating life in the womb. One other subject, and I'm an African-American, and I've been pro-life for many, many years. I've worked in pro-life causes here in my community. One of the things that you're going to focus on is abortion and racism and a pro-life response. This will be a a part of the critical conversation of abortion as it relates to racism. I've been very concerned about the strategic locations of Planned Parenthoods, for example, the founder, Margaret Sanger, and her eugenicist um, uh, motivations that is still mm. reflected in the way Planned Parenthood moves forward. That too is going to be a part of the conversation uh, to put this into the broader con- uh, context of how uh, this uh, hideous practice is impacting all of our communities. Absolutely. And thank you so much for bringing in that up because you cannot separate abortion and racism. As you said, the very beginnings of Planned Parenthood were steeped in racism. And um, Margaret Singer was not someone we should look up to and idolize. And, uh, you know, it's just so um, important for us to have this really hard conversation. And one of the things I appreciate is one of our speakers, Christina Bennett, who is from Connecticut State Representative there, she calls that out. She calls mm-hmm. out how Planned Parenthood will target um, those African-American communities or minority communities and says now there are more African-American children aborted than born alive 
in New York City in the boroughs. Think about the sadness of that, that we have lost an entire generation That's right. of young people, and it's heartbreaking. So we want to call attention to that. Not um, Again, not in a way that's confrontational, um, but in a way that educates people so that they are aware of what's going on in our communities. That's how we start making a difference, and that's how we start joining the movement to end abortion. We mentioned that there are going to be a number of uh, soul-stirring stories, pro-life stories, compelling Christian commentary. But there's also going to be music, and I love the, uh, the 4D ultrasound of a baby that offers a window into the womb. Absolutely. Well, and of course, that's my favorite part, being over the option <laughs> ultrasound program for 16 years. Um, you know, we know that ultrasound makes a difference, but we want to share that with people. And, you know, that was one of my big takeaways from the event we did in New York City was watching the faces in the crowd of people who possibly had never heard mm-hmm. a heartbeat like that or seen a scan of a, a little one in the womb. Um, why not share that? Why does so... Uh, what is the other side so afraid of a sting? They're afraid of a sting that that's a human, a little tiny human, a baby that's alive, and you hear that heartbeat, and you know that that is a little person made in God's image that's not a blob of tissue. So I'm excited about that part, and the music is amazing. It was written specifically for us, and I think your listeners are going to be in for a real treat. Now, our listeners can watch on any of the social media platforms. You can RSVP on Facebook, join uh, the uh, the uh, event on YouTube. What's the best way for our listeners to not only uh, connect with this event, but also um, to follow up and make the commitment that as a pro-life person, I'm going to endeavor to have an impact on this issue moving forward? One of the things that um, we're asking people to do that's just a really easy on-ramp is to go to the Focus on the Family website and sign that pledge. The pledge really is just a way for them to say they're joining our movement, and then that takes them to a page so they can register for the event. But then on that page are really specific ways that you can get involved. Obviously, the first thing we can do and the best thing we can do is to pray. Um, But then it's also to get involved at your local pregnancy center, get involved at your church, Um, Have your church really get involved locally so that you are impacting men and women who find themselves in this situation. Um, I laugh often and I say, you know, I'm a coach's wife, so I'm a big sports person. Um, Let's not be on the sidelines anymore. Let's get in the game. Let's get involved and be a part of this and be the one who does something to start making a change and start ending abortion in our lifetime. You can go to FocusOnTheFamily.com for more information. We're talking about Sea uh, Life 2020, the event that's taking place this Saturday, 5 o'clock Pacific time. is going to be shown all across the country. You can watch on any of uh, the social media platforms. You can RSVP on Facebook. You can join the event on YouTube. But you can find out more at FocusOnTheFamily.com, and I would encourage you to do just that. Uh, to see you know, the tr- tremendous numbers of people who have signed on to that Uh, that pledge that the speakers and the artists, uh, it's just going to be a wonderful opportunity for pro-life people and those who perhaps are on the fence. You maybe don't know much about the issue, but have been thinking about it. This is a great way to get educated. You you have the the privacy of your own home, the comfort of your home. It might be a great opportunity to invite others to join you. If you have children who are age appropriate, and I'll ask you about that in a minute, Robin, this will be a good opportunity to introduce the subject to some of the younger people in your house. Household. And let me do ask you, Robin, what's a good um, age range for those who uh, would incru- include their sons and daughters or grandchildren? Great question. Um, most, I will say, I'll start with this. 
Most of the film is a documentary style film, and it's very appropriate for everyone to watch. However, so that we can educate people on what happens in a Planned Parenthood um, clinic or what happens during an abortion, we do have some pretty gritty portions. Um, you'll hear from Dr. Levitino, who's a, a former abortionist, as well as Abby Johnson. And I would say that's a great time for your littles to go get a snack or maybe take a potty break, um, get up and stretch their legs, because it is going to be something um, a little harder for those little ones to hear. But this is a great time to start having conversations with your teenagers, your tweens, um, and those, you know, into the college ages. Great opportunity to have conversation about what it means to be pro-life and how they can get involved. So I would just be really cognizant of that when Abby mm-hmm. starts talking about what happens in an abortion clinic. Um, and yeah, and just maybe take a break with your littles. That's good advice. Well, Robin, I'm so grateful for Focus on the Family and making this opportunity available, Sea Life 2020. And thank you for taking the time to talk with us about it here today. Well, thank you for having me on. And it's always a pleasure. Um, and thanks for getting the word out. We are so excited about this and hope that your listeners can join us tomorrow evening. We hope so, too. Thank you, Robin. Once again, Sea Life 2020 coming up this Saturday, 5 o'clock p.m. For more information, you can go to Focus on the Family's web, uh, I should say, uh, Facebook page. You can go to their webpage, focusonthefamily.com. You can go to kpdq.com and find out more information as well. This is going to be a significant pro-life event uh, at this time in our community all across the country. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll hear from Mary Graybar, author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History That Turned a Generation Against America. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. I have so looked forward to the conversation I'm about to have with my next guest, uh, Mary Graybar. She's the author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History that Turned a Generation Against America. Well, Marx's talking points are dominating American education, brainwashing students to believe American history is nothing more than a litany of oppression, slavery, and exploitation. As an African-American, I understand our history. I know it. My family was impacted by it. But I don't buy this stuff. How has this happened? Since 1980, socialist Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States has dominated the American education system as the textbook of choice for leftist teachers across the country, turning young students against America and into foot soldiers for a progressive revolution. If you want to know where much of what we're seeing now has come from. Well, in the book Debunking Howard Zinn, she exposed, or rather exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America. My guest demolishes his popular history, a history pushed by Hollywood celebrities, defended by university professors who know better and assigned in high school and college classrooms. There's even a children's version. She reveals uh, Zinn's bag of dishonest rhetorical tricks, his slavish reliance on partisan history, explicit rejection of historical balance, a selective quotation of sources to convey the exact opposite message of what their author intended. Well, Mary Graybar is a resident fellow at the Alexander Hamilton Institute for the Study of Western Civilization and the founder of the dissident professor uh, prof education project. She taught at the college level for 20 years, most recently at Emory University, and her work has been published by the Federalist, Town Hall, Front Page Magazine, City Journal, and many, many others. She joins us today to debunk Howard Zinn. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. Really appreciate it. I want to begin by just asking, who is Howard Zinn? Because while in academic circles he's well-known, in education circles where his uh, book is is pushed and a children's version is now widely available, most people may have, uh, the book came out in, what, 1980? Most people have no idea who Howard Zinn is, although they have seen his influence. Yeah, well, Howard Zinn died in 2010. He was born in 1922. Um, He was a a member of the Communist Party, actually. Uh, We're 99% certain of that. But he promoted a a communist message in his book and in his other writings and spoke favorably about communism. Um, He taught at Spelman College from 1956 to 1963. Uh, which then really did adhere to its Christian principles um, and then uh, was fired from there, uh, incidentally, by the first um, black president of the college and the first male president of the college for insubordination. Um, he led the students um, on these protests that were harmful to them and um, inspired them to uh, rebel against the administration and against going to chapel and so forth. And uh, But he was soon landed on his feet, and he was at Boston University where he taught until he retired in 1988. And um, he was asked to write a people's history of the United States in the late 1970s. And basically, uh, as you reviewed, he uh, wildly distorted the history, threw together, um, you know, some you know, dubious sources and, and cobbled together this book, which is, uh, which has exceeded all records for a history book of its type in terms of sales and influence. It really is quite remarkable how that has happened. You write in the, uh, I think it's in the preface of the book, about the context in which this book emerged. There were a number of historians who were discredited at that time as his book was about to come out, and somehow his emerged and flourished uh, when uh, a number of historians were discredited, even though he's not a great historian, uh, and and even critics who would agree with some of his um, uh, priorities had to say that this is not a, a, a good work of history. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, there's Michael Kazin, uh, you know, well-known leftist, and uh, when he reviewed the book, he called it uh, more appropriate to a conspiracy monger's website <laughs> than to a history book. Um, yeah, so it, it was uh, criticized on the left as well. I mean, by any standard measure of history writing, um, what's in a people's history is uh, fraudulent. It's, um, you know, it's not backed up by statistics. It, uh, you know, uh, promotes uh, rumors, a conspiracy theory. Uh, he uh, takes quotations out of context. He makes speakers say the opposite of what they really did say. And up until now, no one has really gone through his book and systematically checked it against uh, his sources or what other historians have said. And I, I did check with historians both on the right and on the left. And I went through his own papers at New York University. I went to the Martin Luther King Center. I went to the Library of Congress and Emory University and did research and, um, and discovered that this uh, book is a fraudulent piece of history. And yet, deliberately so. Deliberately yes. so. <laughs> and yet, it is, it's a very popular book. 
and in the academy, it's it's uh, embraced in colleges and universities all across uh, the country. Uh, the the young people who were raised on this book are now lawmakers. Uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez is one I- example, running on socialist platforms. Um, how did his teachings influence this? Um, well, you know, when you hear something like uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez calling uh, the detention centers, you know, of, of the people who are trying to come into the country concentration camps. That's exactly what Howard Zinn did in the people's history. Uh, so, you know, we interned the uh, Japanese Americans during World War II. That was widely known, you know, even before um, the order was given. Um, and that's been criticized. Uh, and it was criticized, actually, by J. Edgar Hoover and um, George Schuyler, a prominent African-American journalist at the time, a conservative, um, also by uh, Senator Robert Taft. So there is a debate about, you know, whether or not that should have been done uh, within the context mm-hmm. of war and what the fears were. Um, but by no stretch of the imagination could those be called concentration camps. Uh, and, you know, Howard then lied about the information. Uh, you know, uh, I mentioned that uh, Kazin called his book, uh, you know, a conspiracy theory. Well, Howard Zinn presents, um, his evidence is that um, there was an article in late 1945 uh, at the end of the war that exposed these uh, so-called concentration camps. Well, that's patently false. (laughs) There were daily newspaper articles about, um, you know, sort of the the police going after the Japanese as well as German-Americans and Italian-Americans, you know, who were suspect. Uh, there are daily reports. There was a, a film um, narrated by Milton Eisenhower shown in movie theaters. Uh, there was actually uh, an article in the 1942 Harper's Magazine, the same magazine that he cites, that describes life in uh, these camps. Um, you know, it wasn't uh, luxurious, but they were clean. The food was good. There was plenty of it. Uh, there was a, a foreign legion uh, station in, in the one he went to. Uh, people had gardens. Their children played baseball. So um, it, it's uh, just, uh, it's obscene to um, claim that those camps were concentration camps. And as people have rightfully said, about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's statement, um, you know, and and one of the things I point out also is this has such an influence on millennials, uh, you know, the majority of whom now approve of socialism or communism over capitalism. Uh, there is a woman who was elected to the Oklahoma City Council, and instead of placing her hand on a Bible, she placed it on a people's history of the United States. Hmm, written by Howard Zinn. Now, how did he yeah. his history become so popular? You, in the introduction, uh, remind us that in Goodwill Hunting, there is a reference, several references made there, and that um, Hollywood has helped to popularize all of this. But trace for us how his history became so popular. Well, the ground had been set. Uh, so a lot of the people, uh, you know, the 1960s generation, the Vietnam protesters, they went into education. Uh, there have been studies done of the percentage of them, and it's disproportionately high. 
And so they uh, were already writing uh, these uh, ideological left-wing histories. Um, and uh, they, you know, a, a prominent historian, Oscar Handlin, had, uh, you know, criticized them. Other historians had criticized them. Well, Howard then took what they wrote and just ran with it. <laughs> he made it, you know, even uh, worse. He magnified what they were saying. And he put it together in this book. But he also added this uh, a flair. He had this uh, ability to write and um, to touch people's emotions. He did it illegitimately. Um, but he was able to do that. So. He has made people cry, uh, you know, after they read a people's history. Some uh, have become angered. He's inspired Antifa, the guy that was going to blow up, um, you know, the, the detention center in Tacoma, if you recall that, uh, oh, maybe about a month ago. Mm -hmm. uh, he, in his manifesto, said, read Howard Zinn. He was his hero. Yeah. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we are talking with uh, Mary Graybar. She's the author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History that Turned a Generation Against America, a very important book to deconstruct uh, what he has, uh, his influence, what he has written and what the truth is. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States has sold more than 2.5 million copies. It's pushed by Hollywood celebrities, defended by university professors who should know better, assigned in high school and college classrooms to teach students that American history is nothing more than a litany of oppression, slavery, and exploitation. His history is popular, but it's also massively wrong. Joining us uh, to talk about that and continuing our conversation is uh, scholar Mary Graybar, who uh, is the author of D. Debunking Howard Zinn, exposing the fake history that turned a generation against America. Well, there certainly are influencers who have pushed this book and popularized it. But what significance uh, role has Zinn played in today's education system, his book as well as his system of education? Well, uh, teachers have adopted his uh, own teaching strategies, which involve not, you know, extensive reading and uh, writing papers and doing research, but, um, you know, going out and protesting and keeping journal entries and, uh, you know, not taking any tests. So uh, there has been the destruction of knowledge. But um, his book is being used, The People's History of the United States, is being used in colleges of education. And sometimes the teachers that, you know, are using that book are not getting any other version of American history. Uh, so that's what they get, and they pass it on down to their students. And uh, as you probably know, most of the uh, textbooks that are adopted are left-wing anyways. And uh, so they have this notion that Howard Zinn's version of history is true. And uh, so they pass that on to their students. And, you know, if you think about it, you know, people who read A People's History when it came out in the 80s, uh, you know, they've had children. They may have grandchildren by now. And so they think that his version of history is the real one. They don't think there is anything wrong with it. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, that is passed on through the generations. And so we're getting into the second generation of Zen's influence. 
Uh, teachers also can go to the Zen Education Project and download lessons uh, from the book. Uh, right now, there is a campaign to abolish Columbus Day. The Smithsonian, I wrote about this uh, yesterday, is sponsoring teach-ins for teachers um, and using Zen's materials. And uh, they are learning how to lobby legislators to abolish Columbus Day. Um, it, you know, there are graphic books, you know, comic books, uh, you know, with Howard Zinn. Um, he appears in uh, song lyrics. There, there's a play, uh, you know, it's going to be on Broadway about his life. Um, it, you know, they have uh, book festivals dedicated to him. Uh, Occupy Wall Street had a library in New York City, and uh, Howard Zinn's books were staples. Uh, Black Lives Matter, uh, they're influenced by Zinn, and now Antifa is influenced by Zinn. And I think we're really getting into some dangerous territory when we're talking about Antifa. So uh, it, 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 it's, you know, it's almost, it's difficult to measure, but uh, if you ask any, you know, the common person, They'll likely uh, say, yeah, I've heard of Zen. Um, some people, you know, uh, saw Goodwill Hunting and were introduced to him. Mm -hmm. Teachers, professors are introducing students um, to him, recommending him. Um, you know, I just heard of that a couple weeks ago. Uh, so it's, it's not measured, but uh, by the book sales, by the adoption in the classroom, by the cultural references, Zen's influence, we know, is just growing exponentially. I think most people assume that once something is in print, if it's embraced by the academy, that there must be good scholarship. Yet even those on either side of the ideological spectrum have acknowledged that Zen's scholarship is, is poorly done. And it's hard to imagine how he has succeeded as well. Uh, as he has, particularly among academics? Is it because he is parroting what they want to hear? Uh, how is it that he has managed to resonate with so many, despite the fact that his scholarship is so poor? Um, I, yeah, I, I think you uh, pinpointed a large part of that, I, and this is uh, something that I go into in my book. Yes. Uh, but Michael, yeah, Michael Kazin, the, the uh, scholar I mentioned, you know, on the left, you know, was once a member of the Weather Underground and criticized uh, Zinn uh, when the book came out. But in 2010, it, uh, Mitch Daniels, when he was governor of Indiana, had emailed people uh, in education. He learned that Zinn's book was being used in an NEH, National Endowment for the Humanities, summer session for teachers to get continuing education, and he was outraged and expressed it in these emails. Well, these were revealed by an AP reporter in 2013, um, and by that time, Mitch Daniels was president of Purdue, and Michael Kazin and the other leftists who had criticized him now attacked Mitch Daniels. I mean, it, it's truly amazing, you know, how they went 180 degrees and, uh, you know, accused Mitch Daniels of ignorance and censorship and not understanding how history is written. Hmm. Um, so, so to, uh, you know, to attack Zinn uh, is uh, sacrilegious in uh, leftist academia. 
you know, I, I've even gotten a couple, I got a couple pieces of hate mail before the book was out. <laughs> you know? yeah, because you don't challenge the oracle of Zen. Um, I, yeah. It's important for us to understand his influence, to understand his writing. What do you hope to accomplish when people have a better uh, appreciation for how he has managed to work his way into our education system to influence generations? And are you hopeful that we can reverse course with a clear, um, accurate understanding of history? Um, Yes. Well, my book is intended to be a tool, an expose. Um, Up to now, I don't think that students who were fed this stuff or parents or the general public um, had something that would rebut what Howard Zinn is saying. So I try to lay it out. And so every time he makes a misstatement or he plagiarizes or he quotes out of context or just lies, I uh, come back and with other sources with my original research and expose that. So for students who may be facing a professor, you know, who loves Howard Zinn um, and his spouting his view of history, uh, they can have this book and go back and say, well, okay, this is what Howard Zinn says, and this is actually what the truth is, and they can go back and check all my footnotes. This is extensively footnoted, um, and they can have a tool, and maybe this will help us to, um, you know, bring down Zinn's reputation, uh, he, you know, and to expose his fraudulence as a scholar. He is not a legitimate historian or a scholar. He is a communist propagandist. I am so grateful for the book. I am grateful for the time that you've spent talking with us about it today, and I would highly recommend it to parents, to students, to anyone who wants to understand the course that the culture is taking, to understand some of our lawmakers and this uh, bent toward uh, Marxism. This is an excellent book to help us uh, not only understand, but to be able to respond effectively. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Again, Mary Graybar, author of Debunking Howard Zinn, Exposing the Fake History That Turned a Generation Against America. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back to wrap things up here on the Georgine Rice Show. Wanted to remind you that this weekend, thousands of people are expected to convene in Washington, D.C. for Franklin Graham's inaugural prayer march. Tens of thousands have expressed interest in the prayer march, um, according to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Uh, They've announced on Twitter that the uh, event was taking place because the nation is in trouble. Uh, Interest in the march ranges as uh, far from as Puerto Rico, we're being told, and Christians plan to organize their own prayer march locally if they can't attend Saturday's event in D.C. So my guess is there will be similar events somewhere here in the Portland metro area and in southwest Washington. There will be no microphones or audio amplification during the Saturday march in Washington, according to the uh, official website. Uh, The Billy Graham Evangelistic Association intends for this to inspire individuals to pray silently Uh, as they are going the 1.8-mile path that's been set out for them. The march will consist of seven stops around the National Mall, with each having its own prayer focus. Uh, According to the website, um, you can find this online at the 
Billy Graham Evangelistic Association website. Um, uh, the stops were announced last month on the March's uh, website with the seventh stop designated for prayers at the U.S. Capitol for the Supreme Court. So this was actually on the website some time ago. And, of course, the, the firestorm that is about to erupt around the next Supreme Court appointee makes uh, the last stop at the Supreme Court building an excellent place to uh, end this uh, this historic event. So that prayer march taking place this Saturday. Also this Saturday, as we heard earlier in the program, focus on the Families Sea Life 2020 event. That's this Saturday at 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. It's an online event. It's going to focus on the lies and the pain surrounding the issue of abortion. It's also going to celebrate the miraculous wonder of life. If you don't know what happens in the womb, if you've never seen images, for example, if you haven't heard stories from those who have lived through either a a live birth or an abortion they now regret, this is an opportunity for you to learn more. What happens in a Planned Parenthood? What is an abortion actually about? Well, you can watch, you can share the digital premiere, and that includes pro-life stories and compelling Christian commentary. Uh, There's some great music by names of people you would know. Plus, there's a 4D ultrasound of a baby in utero offering a window into the reality of life in the womb. So uh, as uh, my conversation with Robin Chambers uh, indicated, this is appropriate for all age groups. However, when discussion begins about what happens in a Planned Parenthood, and my understanding that is that Abby Johnson, who used to be the director of a Planned Parenthood, will go into some appropriately graphic detail that might be a great time for the younger ones uh, to go get a snack or or otherwise to be preoccupied. But it's a wonderful opportunity for teens and preteens and young people uh, who want to understand better what's what's the big deal about abortion. Most of us have very little idea. Well, this is intended to be informative and inspiring. You'll receive um, uh, an opportunity to sign on to a pledge that says, I am committed to standing for pro-life um, uh, issues and the sanctity of life. Uh, you can share your commitment with others, and they're asking uh, folks to use the hashtag love every heartbeat to show your family and friends, church, neighbors, etc., that you are all in and to be a part of this event. You can watch it on any of your social uh, media platforms, uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. You can RSVP on Facebook. You can join it on YouTube. Uh, So there are lots of ways to take part in the event. You can learn more about that as well at FocusOnTheFamily.com. And again, it is the Sea Life 2020 event this Saturday at 5 o'clock p.m. By the way, Focus on the Family has set a goal for 250,000 people to sign the pledge to love every heartbeat, and that's their hashtag. As of this morning, 150,754 pledges had been signed, and you can learn more about that at FocusOnTheFamily.com. Among those who will be presenting at the event, uh, Jeannie Mancini, who is with March for Life. She is going to co-host with Ben Watson, uh, who is an athlete and an activist. Mike Singletary, the NFL great, is going to be a part of it. Lila Rose with Live Action will be a part of it. Alveda King, who is a civil rights leader and um, niece of Dr. Martin Luther King. Candace Owens, political analyst. Abby Johnson, uh, who was once the director of a Planned Parenthood, and Melissa Odin, who is an abortion survivor, all will be a part of that. Jim Daly will be speaking along with many, many others, as well as a number of musicians, recording artists, Phil Stacy, Stacy rather, Selah, Phil King, Danny Goki, 
Meredith Andrews uh, will all be providing music for this event as well. Again, that's this Saturday, 5 o'clock p.m. Go to FocusOnTheFamily.com for details. want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Pray. Pray for our nation. Pray for our community. God is still on his throne. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.